This is Paul. And this is Sheila. Today, we're going to talk about the second episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This one is called Pocket Savior and was directed by Tucker Gates. Are you familiar with any of Mr. Gates' work? I'm sure if you start reading it off, I will be. Well, I'll do that. He goes all the way back to 19... Shoot, 1989, he was involved with 21 Jump Street. Can you imagine that? Like the original? Yes. Like Richard Grieco and Johnny Depp? <laughs> All that, yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. He's done a couple of X-Files, like the old school X-Files. Oh, um, hell yeah. He's done, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff just to pick up some ones that are high points for me. Uh, Carnival, did you ever see that on HBO? Oh, yeah. Or, oh, deep cuts here. Yeah, Alias. Oh, I am I am in for this episode even more so now. He did seven Lost episodes, four Office episodes, two Parks and Rec episodes, The Sinner, Ray Donovan. So he goes like all over, in and out of genre, in and out of uh, different types of shows, tends to stick to TV by the looks of things, has an Orville in there, mm. <laughs> uh, a, a couple Homelands. Um so that's who directed this episode. Well, I am a fan. So, and I guess with all that lost uh, experience, he's no uh, stranger to the time jumping. You know, pre, you know, telling the the story, what happened before, and what's happening now. So there's that. So I've had some time to like mull this over, and just in seeing some of the comments that I've read online and some of the the criticism, I guess I've seen of the first episode, I don't find this way of storytelling to be disruptive or confusing. I, I just, I think I'm well conditioned for it. And I think it's a neat, neatly packaged way to fill in backstory. Uh, I don't know if, if that's a, a fair statement or if I'm being too lenient. I don't know. I think it requires perhaps, and I'm not going to, uh, cast aspersions on my fellow TV watchers, but I do know for my own self Watching a story with a leaping timeline like this um, requires a more active watch for me, mm -hmm. especially as, like even in, in Lost, they at least had that sound to let right. you know that, they're, right. that they were doing that. But here, um, unless our pre-air copies don't have the sound effect or, <laughs> or, so. or maybe like the title card to say five months earlier or. Right, right. Then then some of the scenes do jump in a way that might lose a viewer or two. But let me back up and say in to this episode's case and the way that Larry in particular is having to navigate his way through the apocalypse and having a lot of drugs and having kind of a split sense of the good and the bad that are drawing other people to various places. Mm -hmm. I think that's okay because I'm not sure that he knows what's real and what's not. Yeah. What's happening now, what's happening before. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fair. It's, I, he is well supplied with the, the drugs front. Definitely though. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, so let's talk about Larry and let's cover pretty much his whole run in the five month prior and beyond story. How's that sound? Mm -hmm. Sounds good. All right. So like we mentioned last week, Larry is a, an entertainer, a singer. I'm not sure what 
uh, equivalent famousness he would have in today's world. I don't think he's like a John Legend. I think he's more like a uh, a Robin Thicke, <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone that has a popular song right now that's kind of gotten everywhere. And well, he does have that little moment where he's playing in the the five month earlier scene where you know they uh, he alludes to one of his songs being used for like cologne commercials. So like there was this element of large stardom that maybe has waned a little. Yeah. So I feel like Robin Thicke would be a good analogy. For that. Like <laughs> one really big, like bright, shining spark of a moment, and now he's on the mess singer. And plus, you have that uh, element of having maybe stolen a song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, check and check. <laughs> I was just shooting from the hip, people. Uh, I I just I just came up with that right then. Yeah. But he's played very charismatically by Jovan Adepo, who I mentioned last week. I know from The Leftovers, but he's acted up a storm since then. And this character is very different than the uh, pious young man who who aspired to grow a congregation in a local church in The Leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of different. (laughs) Yeah, this guy... He has all different kinds of elements in him, and that's probably what makes him drawn, or dream anyway, of both Abigail and and uh, Randall. He has a certain shittiness about him, certain selfishness. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if Rita will play ball with him, he'll he, he wants to help her, but he he can in his current state of mind, he can only go so far. Right, he's got limits. Let's do. How much he's going to extend himself. His self-preservation, right. It's got a cap. But at least there's the element of wanting to help her that is a kernel <laughs> of of what may be to come. And starkly different from where he started off. Right. In a very short amount of time. Like, we get the feeling that this Captain Trips has taken over very quickly. So, yeah, he's he's on a, a quick journey himself in terms of, you know, his meta, his metamorphosis. I do have a comment, though, about when he is playing in the club and there's, you know, like seven people in in the crowd. All right, maybe not seven. But um, I went to a concert on March 6th and it is surreal to think about how quickly in a week the world changed. So Mm. um, I, I was feeling I was feeling that moment pretty strongly when he was there and he joked around that it was like, you know, his first, it looks like his first show in terms of just how sparse the crowd is. That was one of the corollaries of 2020. I was like, oh man, I I feel that crowd. I feel that moment there. This is um, another good example of how they've compressed the story effectively to give you a good idea of the things that were in the book, but smushed like in the book for instance he goes and stays at his mom's house for a while Mm -hmm. and all of the kind of disappointment and non-plussed you know so what my son is famous kind of thing that she expressed in the book you know mom only gets two scenes here right she gets in the club and in the hospital but you do get that <laughs> in those yeah. scenes. Like, yeah, she knows her son has success, but she she knows that he can actually like, probably do quite a bit better than that. Right. All she needed was a look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and every mom's got that look. And every yeah. kid knows who that look is. Yeah. But in the book, man, that is just like we mentioned in the first episode or first podcast, in order to get us in, in Larry's mind and let us know who he is and how selfish he is and how much he thinks about his fame and, and all that stuff. We have to spend a couple of days at mom's house. You know, um, we do get a richer sense maybe of his waning 
fame uh, because he's run out of money in the book. It's a very mm -hmm. like that's why he's staying at mom's is because right. he can't put things together. He still has his fame and nobody really knows that he's out of money, but he's out of money. Mm hmm. The scenes with Larry for this episode for me really showed this, the difference between episode one and episode two in the sense that we see the breakdown, the collapse of society that happens so quickly. We see this on a grander scale. Mm -hmm. With Larry, we see the guy who busted out of Mount Sinai, who had the angiogram and you know shows his hospital gown. And, and Larry shows us uh, through searching for his mom, we see the body bags in the hospital corridor with the, the super packed hospital where people are suffering acutely. And then the throngs of cars that are left on Manhattan streets and bridges. So I, I felt this was a much bigger episode. And and through the through the journey of Larry, we got to see how the, the how the storytelling is shifting. So I liked where like Larry was brought into the story to to shift the focus more from the the actual pandemic part to to more of this post apocalyptic journey that they're on. It uh, it evokes some of that I am legend type. Oh, and, absolutely. I, in fact, I got a few different vibes. I'm not going to accuse any anybody of, of stealing a look or a feeling or anything like that, because, you know, to, to an extent, almost everything is derivative of something else. And there's no shame in that. That's just in a, <laughs> something. Sure. And everybody has influences. And yeah. So so but that seeing we didn't see Times Square specifically, but but we did see something that looked Manhattan ish. And, you know, like you said, the cars parked and, and needing to kind of weave in and out and just in a, in a zombie story, at least you're totally fucked if you're yeah. <laughs> in the city yeah. here. It's, it's, it's inconvenient. You want to get out because it's like, like Larry mentioned, it's going to smell. <laughs> but, and it's an island, you know, all that. <laughs> it's yeah. only got but so many resources. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Rita. Heather Graham for me is someone who has been just the prettiest girl ever, like for my entire adult life. So when she's cast as Rita, who in the book is an older woman whose looks are sort of fading, I'm like, take your beak from out thy heart. What are you, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing to me? Yeah. In terms of like the waning beauty and the sort of, you know, past her prime, Heather Graham was not a great character <laughs> choice for this because... I mean, I don't know exactly how old Heather Graham is, but I mean, damn, that woman is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she she's she's um, got it figured out. Whatever whatever anti aging serum there is, she's got it. Yeah, um, I, I need to get my hands on whatever she's got on her nightstand table. But now that we've objectified her, let's um, <laughs> let's talk. I, I mean, in the most nice way possible, because she is definitely someone who doesn't fit the mold of what maybe I imagine Rita Blake more to be. You know, Heather Graham has a certain range, I think, in her acting. I've never seen her get totally like Oscar bait type type emotional, you know, I've, but, mm -hmm. I've se but I've seen her play weird and I've seen her play like roller girl and I've seen her play different roles. Mm -hmm. And this, how can I say it? It's like it really is a good match for the way that she's going to play it in the way that Rita doesn't seem connected to what's going on in a very, I totally get it sort of way. And I think Heather's bringing that. Yes, this detached. Yes. Like she's seeing it. She's walking through it. She's going through the sewer. She's obviously present and can make her body do the things, but she's not reacting. <laughs> right. She's not emotionally connected to, to what's yeah, happening. She, yeah. She's, she's reacting to rats and shit like that, but she just seems like someone who's I don't know, just not letting it sink in what, what's going on. And she, but she does have moments 
of this realization when it's foisted upon her, I think. Uh, Larry mentions the 8 million rotting corpses when they're in her apartment. And she has this moment where she's like, oh, oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that. Did you say eight? <laughs> I could yeah, probably would, go with three or four, but geez, eight? Yeah, she didn't really register that, I think, until that moment. You know, when she's, when they're weaving through the cars, when they're trying to make their way to the bridge and she's looking and she's seeing, I think that's like when the horror of what's happened really kind of resonates with her, but she doesn't, yeah, like you said, she's very detached from, from what's happened. And all of this happened, we, we get the sense from the book and from even from the, the miniseries so far, this all happened in a very quick turnaround from the time that it first campion escaped to the time that, you know, they're walking across the, the George Washington bridge. So Larry's role is really to kind of bring her to, to present. I forget the time span in the book, but it is supposed to be so contagious. And the show was made before we had the realities of our reality mm -hmm. right now. So they could just lean on what Stephen King put in the book, which was fantastical kinds of stuff. Like it spreads like crazy. It kills almost everybody. Luckily, we're not dealing with something quite this vicious in real life. But if you could imagine that scenario where everything can get you sick and everybody's going to get sick, how short a time that would take, regardless of quarantining and sheltering in place or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you're either born with the immunity or you're dead. That's the, that's the math. The timeline felt like days. And I'm just thinking of like when we met Nick Andros in the book, um, when like John, like the, the Sergeant John Baker, when he got sick, mm -hmm. it was a matter of days. Right. Maybe, maybe a week at most. Yeah. There's one element of the illness from the book that they're probably going to end up skipping over just because they don't need it. But there was the day before you die, you felt fine. That right. was, that was, so it made everybody think they were coming out of it and then they were dead the next day. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Listen good to our time. podcast if you need to be cheered yep. up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So going underground with Larry and Rita, because, you know, they meet, they, they mooch, they, they bone, <laughs> but, yeah. the, but the story moves forward when they go underground. Yes. Because they have to run away from the corporate commandos. Doing their indecent proposal to Rita. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all. If I recall, that is all in the book. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah. It's interesting that that's the imagery that, that, that you get, but I guess if it's, if it is Manhattan, then I guess they would be in suits. And I just find it funny that they're still in suits days later. Yeah. Like, if they could go home. If things got so shitty so fast and say you lived in Connecticut or something. Right. Yeah, I was going to say like Metro North and New Jersey Transit and Long Island Railroad, they were probably a little shut down. Right. So <laughs> then. You need people to run them. What do you do? You do you, do you go to the store and buy some some jeans or whatever? It's it's fast enough, like the reality and all that. Like like look at Rita; she's bringing along like a like a stewardess drag along suitcase. <laughs> you know? yeah. you know, like, uh, I'm not sure that's quite a match. Yeah. So actually, that was one of the things that I noticed different about Rita from the book was that she's much more put together in the show than she is in the book mentally. For as much as we say that she's distant in this, in the book, you're right. She was needing direction, almost like she wasn't going to figure out how to feed herself if she was left alone. Right. I mean, like even down to like the shoes, she was wearing like open toed shoes for their their flee from New York in the book. And here at least she was, had the wherewithal to, you know, grab sneakers. So um, you get the idea that she's uh, 
this is an outdated term, but that she was a kept woman, basically, you know, someone oh, 100%. That, yeah. that was provided for in such a way that she didn't really need to think about those survival, you know, hierarchy of needs <laughs> kinds of things <laughs> that a lot of people do have to face day in, day out. So would the rats have gotten you? Would you have been like, fuck this, I'm out of here? I live in New York. I take the subway. I'm good. Like rats, I, I see rats. Well, prior to pandemic times, I would see rats on like a weekly basis in the subway. You know, they'd just be down there and, you know, they'd be down there and I'd be up on the platform and we had our mutual distance. Yeah. I think she just needed to walk closer to the center. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, breathe and, you know, yeah. I, I, I could take like an Indiana Jones approach. Be like, you know, I'll just stay in the middle. <laughs> it's it's unideal, that's for sure. But oh no, yeah. But I mean, you know, the, I think I would I think I would have much more of a problem with other things like insects, and mm. uh, than I would with rats. Um, yeah. Well, you know, this is part of her preparation. She should put her hair up in like a in like a baseball cap or something. Yeah. Then you just <laughs> you, you gotta be you gotta be ready to go. And I, and I feel like Larry's a little bit more equipped mentally than Rita to survive this. I thought it was hilarious when he said, we just have to pretend to be Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's I funny. appreciated that as a nineties child <laughs> reference. One of my kids is, um, into the retro turtles, uh, in like a huge way. She, oh, that's she follows one of the voice actors, the, the man who played Leonardo in like a Radical dude. Yeah, a totally un <laughs> like unbelievable. Like she follows his work kind of, kind of thing. And so yeah, the turtles are are actually present in our house currently as like a something that's on TV at any point of the day. So I enjoyed that reference, especially. Surprised you haven't called me dude yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tubular. Well, no, no, no. That's too close to the mark of the what happens to the necks of these people. So, no. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. You got me. <laughs> Dial it back. <laughs> we saw a little bit of the quote unquote modernization of the story with Larry trying to follow a GPS underground. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. Like, even that they gave him like the iPhone light as opposed to his Bic lighter. I thought that was a really nice update. But then, as we mentioned last week, it, it came to nothing. It didn't matter. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, they don't need it to affect the story so much. They just need to make it look like it wasn't written in the 80s. Right. So maybe you can help me fill in some blanks here. Because I was having to watch this on my iPhone. And the cuts were super fast and very dark. I had the brightness turned all the way up. You know, I see, I see the scene with Larry seeing his mom. Mm -hmm. And that's when things get wild. Yeah. Really horror imagery kind of stuff that when you think of most TV horror, even say The Walking Dead, you get not desensitized, but accustomed, I guess, to people getting ripped apart, shit like that. But the rats coming out of her mouth, <sighs> that was a, uh, a cringer for me. Yeah, that's hard to watch. <laughs> like she's choking on her words because there's there's rats in there. <sighs> yeah, pretty wild shit. Now, was it that imagery that drove him out of the sewer tunnel or what else happened after that? Because like I said, the cuts were fast. The screen was small. It was fast. It was very dark. I did turn up the brightness too. I watched it on my iPad. So slightly larger screen than you, but I also watched it at like one in the morning. So. Uh, <laughs> kind of slit eyes. Uh, no, no. And just intensive, you know, it's quiet and you oh, know, right, just, it, right. it's the time for horror. Yeah. So he was hearing crows. So remember we saw the imagery of the crow with the horse 
on the street when he met oh, Rita. Yeah. And yeah. so he was hearing crows and there was crows actually flying in the sewer tunnel with him. Whether they're real or not, I'm not sure, but he was definitely dodging them. And then his, so his mom, his mom came first, you know, floating down, but he was hearing the sound of these crows echoing. And then he saw the shadow of her. So he was, whether it's real, whether it's, it, it, it's imagined um, he's having this massive freak out as a result of seeing her, seeing the rats and the, the crows flying through. And he almost drops his drugs. He does drop his phone because a crow does fly through. And I think that was real. And that's what started this sort of hallucination moment for him. So that is a very interesting thing about Larry is that he is having trouble sorting out his dream imagery, his um what's happening around him. And then also whatever is happening to his mind, possibly uh, as a, as a uh, side effect of the drugs that he's taking. Yeah. I definitely had a question mark. I'm like, is this drug induced? Is this, is this, you know, just horror induced from living through the apocalypse? You know, I wasn't sure. The thing is, I didn't get the sense that the scenes that we watch with Larry, except for maybe that sewer scene, are told entirely from his point of view. I guess the dreams are, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that's told more objectively. So in terms of his reliability as a narrator, I think it's still pretty good. Maybe not as clear cut as Stu, but you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes when you, yeah. when you introduce a character that doesn't know what they're seeing, it makes it so the audience doesn't know what they're seeing and can trust what they're seeing. Well, that's that's basically where I'm kind of coming at from Larry right now because of the the constant drug use and he's using cocaine which makes you paranoid which makes you see things and in, in different capacities he's not necessarily coming across as the most reliable and I feel like this scene is like really showing how untrustworthy he is at the moment that's interesting that's an interesting take because once we get to Boulder later we do find out that he's selected to be one of the leaders, council members, something. So there's five. Yeah. There's something about him that Mm -hmm. supernaturally matters, Mm -hmm. but we're being given this exposure, I guess, to the way he sees things that we're supposed to be wondering, well, why would you pick this? Yeah. Like, do we trust him? (laughs) This guy. Well, especially, you know, he's got some altruism, but it's outweighed by his selfishness at this point. Right. He hasn't had that transformation that we even see within this episode. Mm-hmm. He's very different from five months, five months from now to five months ago, Larry. All right. So the final moments with Rita, where she wanders off from their little camp area. Mm-hmm. I'm a book reader. So I know what happens with Rita, you know, by the end of the story. Do you suppose there's more to come <laughs> for, for Rita or are we supposed to understand like that might be it for Rita? So as again, I read the book too. So um, I think for people who are not familiar with the story, if they're paying close attention, if they're actively watching, they will hear and see her journey, her stark horror at what they're seeing through the traffic when he says about the 8 million corpses rotting, uh, when Larry tells her that. And then when she, they're sitting at the campsite and she says, you know, this is stupid that we survived. It's like us being the last at the party. The fact that she goes off on her own and you see her take something and, and drink something to me is a good setup for like, this is the end of Rita. Yeah. I, I'm always looking for adaptations um, that I'm overly familiar with and where they decide to depart from the source material Mm -hmm. and why, you know, why they would make that choice. 
And I think Rita is more or less a tool for Larry's development, unfortunately, for Rita. Mm -hmm. No, no, I agree with that. She needed to to show that this was a hard thing to process because so much happened in such a short amount of time. And showing that her struggle with that. And then when she comes to grips with it and, and she walks off with her bottle and her pills. Yeah, I think we needed to see that this is hard. This is hard to process. And there's so much more emotion that we're not even scratching the surface of. So you've mentioned Larry transforming. And I'm kind of wondering if a lot of that's going to wind up having been off camera because we don't you know, two episodes in, we know that they they show five months ago. We know that they show, quote unquote, now. Now, whether or not they go back and fill in any of those missing spots in the future, I don't know yet. So what we have is semi-selfish Larry starting out on his journey. And then when the, show, when the episode actually starts, though, he seems to be the kind of the Rick Grimes of a little group um, heading yeah. to Boulder. Yeah. I got a total early few seasons of Walking Dead vibe when they're, you know, running down the empty roads uh, in their in their vehicles all packed up with, you know, tents and supplies and shit like that. Something about it just just like rang out. But I just love the the imagery of them camping in like the home goods store, like the Home Depot type store. I was like, in the end time, my notes were like, in the end time, I'm going to follow Larry's plan. I'm going to be like set up in a Costco and hopefully there's power. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. be set. Costco. Just because the massive quantities of frozen like chicken nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) I'd survive just fine. So uh, one noticeable uh, difference there between um, the two time periods is that there's no Rita. Yeah. But there is a Nadine. Yeah. That's a jarring, potentially jarring way of introducing her. What were you going to say? Yeah, no. So, but but Larry, you know, talks about um, when he's talking to... I think he's talking to Stu and he talks about that he was on the road with somebody and that, you know, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the, that was, that was the goodbye Rita scene. Enter Nadine. Enter Nadine, who, you know, this episode was spent telling us about Larry and we get some expository stuff when she's talking to Franny while they're picking a house. Right. All we know then is that she says she's a teacher. but she has one of those crazy magic jelly beans yeah not a good sign not a good sign so if you don't have your your side eye on nadine yet start there was a lot to go on to get nadine a side eye (laughs) you Um, had her on notice earlier than that huh uh, well, no, the glowy stone was definitely something that it's like, if you're not already paying attention, okay, what's up with her? And the biggest telltale sign for me was when Franny and Nadine are talking and walking to pick out Nadine's new house. Franny mentions about the dreams and, you know, could mother yeah. Abigail have summoned us, a dream summoned us to a, a place that had power and Nadine, oh yeah, the dream. Oh yeah. They're like, yeah, I'm having those dreams. And it's like, mm-hmm, sure. What are you talking But she's got no, no idea. She's like, the second dream was awesome. Right. Like if you thought the first one was wild, you should stay tuned. Um, But yes, so that is another moment where if you're not picking up on this, then you're not, you're not actively watching. I I feel like Um, because there's enough of these clues that if you're not familiar with the story from prior, that you would start to know that "Mm, I got to keep my eye on her. Harold's already given me the heebie-jeebies. So now what's up with her? You know, like there's enough of these little nuggets here and there to know that something's amiss. I just hope that we do get something with her. Yeah. Because in some ways, 
could add up to somebody that belongs in Boulder. But it's possible that having these these dreams that don't jive with everyone else's dreams has thrown her off in, in such a way that it's hard to reconcile reality anymore. Right. I think what we're supposed to get, either whether you're watching this for the first time or read the book, is there's just some cosmic internal pluses and minuses that add up to maybe your entire potential to either commit good or or evil. And I, I guess we're just supposed to assume that anyone drawn to Vegas or has the the Randall Flag dreams has has more good more bad than good, which of course what is what makes Larry's dream so interesting because he must mm-hmm. be right on the borderline. Yeah. And we don't actually see any of Nadine's dream. We just know no. that she has this this spooky moment. Um, she doesn't address Mother Abigail when she's talking to Larry. She says the old woman. So mm. she doesn't know Mother Abigail. I didn't notice by that. Name. Yeah. And he's like, I can't talk about it. So yeah. So that was like another little nugget. I was like, hmm. Okay. So she's not having any kind of a dream. It, it's so far from what we've seen of this very short span of her, but she does have this little, her little spooky supernatural moment herself with the, uh, the planchette board, the, the Ouija board. Yeah. It made me wonder if they couldn't get the rights from Hasbro or something for the Yeah. Cause the I definitely went right into Google, like planchette. That's the, that's the plastic <laughs> thing with the, uh, with the, yeah, that's the circle, the, right? The, yeah. The, the seeing eye, I guess. That's what it's called kids. It's called a planchette. The planchette. Yeah. Um, which of course, you know, uh, only draws in evil. I mean, right. when, when has one of those ever drawn in, you know, like your grandma's ghost? It's always something there's, evil. There's a show, uh, Evil, that's on CBS as well. And it's streaming on CBS All Access now and they're shooting season two. They have an episode in season one where there's a Ouija board and it is just one of the more frightening and terrifying episodes that I think would air on Prime Network TV. Caroline won't allow one in the house. No, I won't either. No, no, no. She won't like address the idea of having one or using one or or. I don't anything. even like talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then we can we can move no, on. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Like, but I just I I appreciated its uh, its entry and its place in in the show. Its power. Its power. Yeah, and it's spooky. And like you said, it never summons anything good. It doesn't seem to. It doesn't have a good no. reputation no. for for being something you know cheaply available in the Walmart games aisle. It should be locked up with the drugs in the pharmacy <laughs> section. <laughs> right, right. I'll take a box of condoms, a Ouija board. I'll uh, take some. Uh, I need some Nyquil. <laughs> I need some Sudafed, and I'll take a Ouija board. Right. Oh, sorry, planchette, because we don't have the rights from Hasbro. <laughs> right. Exactly. Aside from Nadine, we got a major character introduction uh, just snuck in there, and I'm not. I'm not convinced that this was the right way to introduce Nick. What did you think? I'm giving them a pass. I'm saying I I presume that there's more introductions to be made because we met Nick for a half a second. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm assuming that there's more to come in episode three of him because you can't just plunk somebody like him in there without some sort of how did he arrive here? He's not in the entire book, but he is... I don't know, maybe the most important character in the book <laughs> yes. in some ways. I didn't, I didn't want to like, you know, plunk that out there. But I mean, you know, you need a little bit more because I haven't watched anything ahead. So like as we're recording these, I'm just watching that one episode because I don't want to inadvertently spin or hue or anything to become a spoiler. So I'm, I'm keeping true to, to how we're watching this and how we're recording it. Um, but yeah, we definitely need a little bit more on who Nick is, especially for people who are new to the story. 
I mean, if you were just sort of casually, you know, uh, reading your email and watching this, I don't even, if you know, I don't even know if you would have absorbed that he's deaf or mute for that matter. I mean, if you're not paying active attention, like we've been talking about, yeah. um, cause he's, he's on what, what maybe six, five, six seconds. Yeah. It's quick. It's quick. And it's so extra because there's already a person acting as sentry, you know, between the outside world and Abigail. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's Nick to be like a second one. All right. I guess that's some way to introduce him. Uh, so I'm totally with you that he is one of the characters that needs his own episode. Right. <laughs> or at least like a, a Larry-like segment in the next one. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. And, and just, you know, taking a step back from the story, there's still more people to be introduced. So I, I feel like episode three will be some more introductions to flesh out our, our character stories. I mean, I think we'll finish up this podcast with talking about the Lloyd stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He's not a, a Boulder resident, uh, no. but he's still important to the story. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's important. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, there's the uh, Larry goes to meet Harold stuff, yeah. which is is uh, drawn right from the book. It, in fact, when you know Larry reluctantly leading his little crew that he collects, um, he does in fact follow Harold's signs that he that he paints all across the coast and across the country to get to what was Nebraska in the book, but basically. <laughs> Mother Abigail, the acting there for what's his name? Owen. Owen Teague. Yeah. Yeah. It, he, his, uh, his face, the way it lit up when he was being flattered, you know, like mm-hmm. you were so helpful to me in the way it just clouded over and drooped when he said, so where's Franny? Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the, what would Harold do moment I think was where his face was about to crack from glee. Yeah. That's who he is. He, um, not that he's weird for it, but he's, he definitely needs the attaboy stuff, you know? Yeah, the, the, the praise. That doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't make you, you know, bound for, for Vegas, if that's you out there needing needing praise. <laughs> it's just one of his qualities that he would rather do something for praise than do something for a better reason than that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Just if you're if you're playing along and you're trying to pick up on, you know, who who's who's getting the side eye here, the bringing along of Joe the mm. nonverbal boy when Larry goes to visit Harold and he asks Joe to, you know, come say hello to Harold, knowing full well that Joe doesn't speak Joe. He emotes for the first time in all of the time that we see him in this episode, he is backing away in fear from Harold on the mm. stoop. So there is another little nugget for you to be paying attention to. So some of these secondary characters are definitely giving you some insight into, to who you need to be paying close attention to i don't know that it's a universal trope but it is a king trope where children and the disabled to some extent have a deeper connection to magic or the supernatural or you know capable of having a sixth sense or something like that that is a theme in a lot Mm -hmm. of his books and it's something that as you become aware of the world and the age of reason or whatever you lose as just a everyday adult. It's one of the things in it. Um, the children have this adventure and then when they become adults, they actually forget it and have Mm -hmm. to have to be reminded of it in a pretty severe way before they can remember it 
you know, it seems like when you're reading the book, who could forget? Right, right. <laughs> but that's just one of the things that he does is, is just children have this quality that adults don't have. But he also extends it in some books to uh, disabled people. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why he does, but he does. Joe looks like he's got two checks there, um, possibly. We're not really yeah. sure what his whole deal is, but that's just one of the a long-winded explanation of why Joe might be uh, being able to detect Harold's true nature. All right, so we really have just one more character to talk about. That is Lloyd. This actually like was almost not exactly, but almost shot for shot with with the uh, the miniseries in some ways, or the old miniseries. Mm-hmm. That was played by um, what's his name, Miguel Fair. And I always had uh, kind of an issue with that, the way that uh, Lloyd was characterized in the old uh, miniseries, because when we're introduced to, to Lloyd, he's with his partner, Pokerizing. That's the dumbest yeah, thing dumbest. ever. Yeah. But Pokerizing I, I, people. I cringed every time I read it or heard it even in this episode. Yeah. King and his weird stuff sometimes. But anyway, but you, but it's, he was characterized as fairly wild, a little crazy, you mm-hmm. know? Um, not as crazy as, as his partner, but, you know, still not some, someone you'd bring home to be, meet your mom. And then all of a sudden, uh, once he meets Randall, he's like a different guy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to explain how, I'm just going to say different guy. And um, I'm, I'm really itching to see the next episode that features any Lloyd time to see if they do that to him in this or or if he retains any of that sort of stick up a gas station kind of attitude that he that he clearly has i mean he did it and he was proud of it to an extent um i thought they followed pretty closely to to the book um Mm -hmm. in in his scenes as far as the 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 stick up scene where uh the the hostage gets pokerized where uh um i thought that that liberty taken was was very very 2020, very stand like uh, it. It felt it felt right in in the sense that um, that poke sneezed and blew her head off. Yeah. Um, I, I I liked that. I mean, gotta be careful. I liked that scene, but I just thought it um, it captured the unexpectedness of, of poke and how he, you know, how he operated. It. And Lloyd was kind of more along for the ride, I guess. Basically, the the jail scenes, everything was pretty close to the mark uh, on Lloyd. That was pretty good special effects with the blowing, basically, Poke's face off, uh, parts of it anyway. Yeah. Pretty convincing uh, holes in his face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that was nightmare. Which is a little more satisfying than his, like, you know, top of his head blowing off. But um, Yeah, but still good enough. Good enough. Yeah. Glad this is on like CBS All Access. Like th- these are some of the moments where I'm just like, okay, this is why you have this kind of platform for this type of a, a project. Where some of the criticism of the '94 miniseries was that you know they had to curtail the language, they had to curtail the violence, they had to curtail a lot of the more extreme elements. Whereas CBS All Access is allowing them to really flesh this out, and I appreciate that for for what we're watching here. I mean, you get a very um, visceral sense now for what Lloyd was going through in the prison. I mean, uh-huh. the old in the miniseries, the old miniseries, it's like he goes to jail, or I don't even know if he, we see him go to jail. We just see like 
it's clear he's been in jail a while and, uh, you know, flag comes and gets him out here. We get to see the extent of what he had to go through, um, in terms of a little light cannibalism, uh, rat eating, eating. yeah, some rat. Although that was a very Pirates of the Caribbean feel to it when he was trying to trap the rat. He was trying to get the rat and, and coax yeah. the rat. And, that's funny. Um, I didn't yeah, draw that, brain. but yeah, that that's funny. <laughs> My brain works in mysterious ways. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> or the toilet water scene, all that stuff. Oh, that uh, was foul. <laughs> yeah, pretty gross. But at least now we know what he had to go through and what state of mind he was in when Flag shows up and is like, I can get you out of here, but you kind of got to do whatever I say forever now. And he's right. like, whatever, get me out. <laughs> I want the chocolate milk and I want the, uh, oh, just, he was, Randall was just painting this very menu graphic picture for Lloyd and he's salivating. And you could just feel like the saliva just flowing through Lloyd's mouth. It was very well done. One question that we might have now is out of all the surviving people in the world that qualify for residency in Vegas, what made Lloyd his choice to be like his personal assistant? <laughs> well, he's St. Peter, really. I mean, he he elevates him to the to the point of St. Peter at the pearly gates, you know? Yeah, that's a big job. I didn't see much that would from Lloyd that would give me what his resume or his skill set is to um to to warrant such a position but maybe it's just the fact that he's willing to go along that's what i was thinking too like he's and he's willing to do bad stuff and go along with bad stuff right um he didn't didn't necessarily want to kill anybody at that gas station but he was willing to rob it he was willing to stick a gun in somebody's face um most folks won't (laughs) (laughs) true right Okay, so I enjoyed this episode with the expansion of the new character, especially um, Larry, because of the questions that that he that he brings and the additional kind of point of view that a character such as he will bring, as opposed to Stu's straightforward. I'll always pick the right thing. Larry's not always going to pick the right thing, but he might uh, try to. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right, he's walking this fine line. It looks like. What do you think of this one overall? I liked this episode. I would say on par. I really did like episode one. And I think this one, and I touched on a little bit earlier with that, it shows more of how quickly society collapsed. Like the last episode we saw very intimately, Franny's dealing with intimate grief with her father passing away. We see the larger scale here. We de- we definitely get a sense of how big this is and how big this the scene is, how big the, the journey is. Going from New York to, to Boulder is about 2,000 miles. And just bringing in more characters is is deepening the story. It's, it's making it richer for me. And I, I liked the journey. I, I I need some more things fleshed out, Nick being the major sort of plot <laughs> hole for me right now. That I was just yeah. like, I, that was the, the only head-scratching moment that I came away with. I'm like, why? Like, why just insert that little nugget right there? I, I really enjoyed the introduction of Randall. I just... Bringing him in the, to the jail the way he did, it was just so fantastically evil. Yeah, he just strolls in. It's a jail. It's not yeah, supposed to be easy like, to get in or out, right. but here he and is. And singing, you know, Ali Ali Oxen Free and, and, and whatnot. Yeah, so, but he's he's trying to, trying to start to win hearts and minds, and he's, uh, he's doing it in a very charismatic kind of a way. What a contrast to the first actor that, that played him, you know, all those years ago. And even depending on... Uh, 
how you decided to characterize them in your mind when you're reading the book or having the book read to you with Audible, Alex has a much more broody, cool, understated, under control take on Randall than mm -hmm. I have experienced before. And I think it's good. I do too. There's one moment where uh, he's actually in the process of springing Lloyd from jail when he says, attaboy. And like, I froze the frame on his face. It was terrifying how he <laughs> screwed up his face to make this like very sinister kind of a look. And I was like, if I was to think of what a Randall face in my mind would look like in listening to the book or reading the book, that's it. I mean, in my mind, I guess I sort of thought Randall was more of a darker kind of a figure, maybe darker hair, but you know, that's really splitting hairs at this point because they refer to him as the dark man and, and th things like that. But you no, know, I'm really enjoying how he's playing this character. Like you said, it's very cool. It's very understated, but at the same time, it's very charismatic, which is what you want this man to be. Yeah. Enticing. Yes. Yeah. Something, even though when, he, when you dream of him, the imagery is generally scary. You know, it's dark. It's got mm -hmm. the calling crows. It's got the weird lights and kind of the apocalyptic piles of dirt and rubble and shit like that. Mm -hmm. But then you have this cool guy being like, hey, we're going to do something great. Just come on down and, and yeah. you'll enjoy yourself. Right. <laughs> and we're all sitting here like he's got to mess up shit real bad. Yeah. <laughs> the only hitch is you got to do whatever I say whenever I say and, it. Yeah, yeah. You can't complain about it. No challenging yeah. orders. Right. But beyond that, the world's our oyster. So yeah, it's uh, it would be more enticing, I think, than than some crazy jackass, you know. Yeah, <laughs> which is another way you could have characterized this guy. There's there's a certain, and you use the word, and it's enticing. You're you're drawn to him. This cool, collected, charismatic. How many more C's can I bring in here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> enigmatic villain that. We don't know exactly that he's the villain yet, but you definitely get the feeling that he's up to no good. He hasn't done anything yet to earn the title of villain. Except for, except for you know, keeping the door open for Campion. But do uh, we really know that that's him? You know, no, there, there's, a, there's, no. there's allusions to the fact that it's his foot because it's this, you know, boot connected to this denim leg. <laughs> um, and then we see, you know, the full-blooded denim that he's wearing, you know, when he's trying to hitchhike for Campion later on. But there's been nothing to give him the street cred yet to earn the title of villain outright. But it's just all this understated stuff and you're, you're drawing conclusions and you're like, okay, was that his foot? Because um, um, one thing that I didn't, I, when I rewatched the episode when it aired on the 17th, the first one, when Randall appears in the backseat with little Ava in Campion's car, his smiley pin on his mm -hmm. denim jacket, yeah. it winks. It goes from the smiley face and it winks and it becomes this evil grin. I did not notice that. The actual, yeah. So I went, when I was watching, it was like, oh. <gasps> Oh, I missed that. So, um, so there's these nuggets that we're giving, you know, if you're connecting all the dots, you're like, okay, this is our arch villain, but he hasn't done anything yet. We just know that he's now amassing a following and he's picking the creme de la creme of society to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Going all the finest prisons yes, to select exactly. his followers. Shopping around and like, oh, who's alive in this one? Uh, but yeah, the, the little winking, um, cause it also, cause when, I had watched this episode 
I think maybe the same day that it came out. So I watched episode two on the same day that episode one came out because we get to watch these in advance, obviously how we're recording this. And when Randall stooped down and when he was greeting Lloyd and he stooped down to his, his, um, his pin, I don't know why I'm like struggling with the word, his pin winked at Lloyd. And that's when Randall said, boo. And Lloyd, you know, flipped out like, oh my God, you are real. You're not a hallucination. Mm, And then later that same day, I watched the premiere and that's when I caught the, uh, the pin blinking and making the, uh, the transition from a smiley face to an evil face. So it's like, Oh, just all these little, all these little things that we just have to pay super close attention to. Well, like you, I would hope that the next episode focuses on Nick since they teased us with Nick. I hope they show us Nick because he's got, he ties into Tom Cullen, who's also uh, pretty important. And uh, I'm dying to see how they characterize him in a, in a 2020 sense, <laughs> um, a more modern sense than maybe we got in the book or the old series. But other than that, I'm leaving my expectations wide open for what I see. I just hope Nick comes next. He would have to. I mean, we're the next episode is a third of the way through. Yeah, because the story is going to have to start taking a pivot to the middle part very soon. Exactly. Yeah, we shouldn't say more than that. But the last part doesn't look like the first part. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to stick with us and see see what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, that has been our coverage for the second episode. This is Paul. And this is Sheila. And we'll see you next week. Uh Hope everybody has a happy holiday season, whatever you decide to celebrate this season or not, whatever. Do it, do what you can, do what you want. I don't care. Um, Just make it, make it what you want it to be. There you go. There you go. I mean, I'll be opening presents on Thursday. I will too be opening presents. And as, as the Amazon, as Alexa is chiming maybe every hour on the hour <laughs> to let me know that things have been delivered, I will be doing a lot of unboxing and wrapping uh, after we finish this up. So I, think I don't I want to do. say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll catch you next time. All right. So if you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so you get a notification ding whenever we drop a new episode. And if you could leave us a comment, that would be fantastic. And a five-star rating would be greatly appreciated. Also, we have created a Spotify playlist where you can enjoy songs from so far episodes one and two. It's called the Boulder Free Radio by Pod Clubhouse Songs from the Stand. And it's available on Spotify and has songs from episodes one and two. And we will be adding to it as the show goes on. Yeah, that was cool. The Weezer song. uh, Yeah, Islands in the Stream. Yeah, something. (laughs) All right, we'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.